You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. My co-host Paul is here, and uh, we are going to talk a little bit about some genealogies, talk about the Advent season and all that stuff. But first, I just want to catch up with Paul here back in his Hillsdale office after an extended time off for Thanksgiving. Paul, how was your Thanksgiving? You know, everyone now knows my like very detailed whereabouts because of these comments you make. That's true. I People just described your room in detail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm hoping to do. I hope you get doxxed. I'm doxing you right now. Yeah. I don't even know what doxed means. It's when you like reveal like somebody's. But it's the li- conservative yeah. vaccination. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like when you expose somebody online, like their actual identity or their. Uh, oh, shoot. That sounds terrifying. Address. Yeah. If your name actually is Paul, but uh, uh, that way, all the all the liberals and the conservatives that I've pissed off over the years will know where I live. Yeah, you're a troublemaker. You're a fire starter. But uh, that's why Sorry, we love roll. you. That's why we have this podcast. Oh, thanks. I love you, you too, and, Brian. That was uh, New York City. <laughs> it was good. I did not end up going to the Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is probably the wise decision because it's just it's just it's just miserable. No one wants to stand outside in the cold. Well, you said I just, that I couldn't bring myself to do it. I know, I know. I chickened out. Yeah, well, you said that uh, it's not even a, a, a true native of New York City is not going to go to that thing. Exactly. To preserve my uh, my native Brooklyn identity, I decided to to forego. So, what is it that people say? You've got to live in New York City for ten years to be a true New Yorker. Is that true? Um, it's whatever amount of time it takes to exclude all the like. West Coast people who come to NYU to study for their degrees. So it's whatever whatever amount of time you want to. <laughs> well, what's your beef yeah. with West Coast people? It's just you get all these like West Coasters and people from the Midwest or just non-New Yorkers who come to New York for college and then live as young professionals in the super bougie parts of Manhattan. And they think of themselves as New Yorkers. And I resent that. You're not and a you New can Yorker tell. If, oh, yeah. You can absolutely. tell immediately who these what are their characteristics? So they live in bougie uh, places. Yeah, they're usually living in Chelsea or in the Upper West Side, uh, Gramercy, and they they look like they're out of place. They're always going to like the cool warehouse clubs and bars, and they're not. They don't have the New York grit. They're not wearing like Yankees <laughs> caps and like. <laughs> Wait, is that what you wear? Wearing you wear coats. a Yankees cap. Uh, I, 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 wanna, I, I might uh, dabble in the old wearing of the Yankee cap from time to time. This is, this is, we always joke about this with you, that when you go home to Brooklyn, you're like this mafia boss. I transform. You show up, yeah. you know, you come out of your taxi and people are like, oh shoot, it's Paul. And they hide behind trash cans <laughs> and you just fire a gun into the sky. You have your back, you have your backwards cap on, something like that. I, I guess, guess you're just painting a horrible image of me. Well, but I, it, it makes sense. I, I think there is a New York grit, like people, it's like no nonsense. Whereas maybe West Coast there people, is. well, are, are West Coast people just too chill, like just too chill and Midwest people are more, they're just too nice. I think Midwest people, after living here for a year and a half now, they're just, they're just good, hospitable, hardworking people. And West Coasters are like divorced from reality. They just don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's just you're living in like perfect idyllic sunshine and the weather's always great and it erodes your humanity. You're just like you're totally cut off from the rest of the country. You're like, what's going on? There's a there's a recession. There's a depression. What? It, whereas New York City, you guys live in the dregs of reality. 
and you have to make it every single day trudging through that snow and the hostile environment and the concrete jungle and the dehumanizing uh industrial world not industrial i guess what is it the uh (laughs) metropolitan the concrete jungle jungle. you ever heard that what the the your your vision of new york is is foreign to me but Oh, I'll take it. We, we should just, I need to come up there and we'll just do a, we'll record an episode there and you can do it in real time. Like me, like being like, Oh my you gosh, <laughs> that was a crackhead or something. I don't know. I don't know what the, <laughs> that, the my, my vision of New York is sourced from all kinds of uh, Netflix shows and movies and all that it's, stuff. I mean, there's, there's a lot of truth to it. That's the thing with New York. It, it assaults people with its that's boldness. you just need to end the you just i'm, I'm just <laughs> gonna cut off the people. pie <laughs> that's the thing about new york it assaults people that's just taken out of context paul Rizcala. but what it does is it assault true. people with with its boldness like you just i think everyone knows what new york is really like because it's just it's portrayals in media you can't ever like like fake new york in a movie like just by virtue of filming in new york you get new york you can never paint a different picture than what's actually there it's yeah, so, okay, so authentic. So, so everything that I'm watching on TV, my stereotype in New York is true. It is what it is. It is. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. And, and so you've got and you've I got think that that's grit a mark in of you. its authenticity. Yeah, there you go. So I you've do, got that New York down. grit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured. I mean, I feel All like my friends, Tony, Mikey, Vinny, Charlie. You could you could pass for Italian. I think sometimes. I you could. I just I need. If you I really need just some, played it up. Bling. Oh my god! I need to Paul, lose some hair. I need to get some some bling. I need to walk around in a in a jogging suit. <laughs> I, I, I would love. Maybe we should do this. We should do like for our listeners, for people to just send in drawings of what they think you look like, <laughs> and then we'll like reveal your actual face. Be like people just draw like these like terrifying mob boss figures, and then uh, they actually have no idea what you actually look like. But, I'm actually just a super lovable borderline pacifistic human being there you go a true, new York, a true new yorker well a new yorker that's been baptized mm. there you go there you go well i know christmas in new york is beautiful right that's kind of a big thing and it's true that's my it's segue magical. into talking about christmas and the advent season all these types of things nice and a figure you know we did, we've done this the past few years talking about christmas topics and stuff like that and uh, i thought we'd talk today about something that came up um, our church started a series on the book of Matthew. So we started with the genealogy and some people had some questions about the genealogy. So if you look in Matthew's genealogy, it's the genealogy, you know, from talking about Abraham to David, and there's seven generations from Abraham to David, and then seven generations from David to the last king before the exile. And people were asking, well, it's only 14 generations because when you look at Luke's genealogy, there's, I think, way more generations. I actually put together a side-by-side list. So apparently there's 42 generations in Luke, and there's only 27 in Matthew. Something like that. But, uh, you know, Matthew is kind of writing out the genealogy to... Uh, do this like sevenfold pattern. I mean, there's a whole like complicated thing about it, but basically Luke, Luke three and Matthew one, they have different genealogies and people were asking, you know, is Matthew skipping a genealogy? If he's doing that, can we trust it? You know, what's the deal with that? Why is this happening? 
Uh, it seems like a glaring error that Luke and Matthew don't agree and that Matthew seems to be omitting some generations, especially generations if you go track it with Chronicles. Uh, there's a whole genealogy there and Matthew skips some. So just feels like something's off. And what, what do we do about that? So, Paul, answer the question. Well, it's it's funny that this is not it's not new. <laughs> like uh, skeptics of Christianity were pointing this out from the second century. So, one, it's kind of interesting that the problem has been known for 1900 years. And so that means we'd expect a plethora of Christian attempts to make sense of what's going on. But also it's a testament to how early the documents are. So like we've got we've got the genealogies and we've got the texts that go back this far and this close to the events. And you got skeptics in the second century pointing out, well, how, Christians, how can we believe anything you're saying about Jesus and the resurrection if you can't even get his genealogy right? So the, the first thing to put on the radar, I guess, is Christians have known about this problem for 1900 years and they've offered a variety of different solutions. And we, we can we can run through some of those. They're not all equally plausible, I don't think. But there's been a few ways of offered on how to harmonize the two accounts. And yeah. Do you, I mean, do, well, you, do you want to just like go through those? Yeah, let's go through those. I mean, maybe we can list out like what are the discrepancies? So if you look at Luke 3 and Matthew 1, um, it's basically the same going from Abraham down to David, essentially. I mean, there's uh, yeah. they skip, I think, one person, but that's not that huge of a deal. But right after David, that's where the genealogy diverges. In Matthew, David goes to Solomon, but in Luke, David goes to Nathan. So those are his two sons, but there's a divergence in the line. But they both go from Nathan and Solomon all the way down, two different genealogies down to Joseph. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the first discrepancy. The second one would be, and this is related, Joseph's dad, he's got a dad in Matthew 1, that's Jacob, but Joseph's dad in Luke 3 is Heli, H-E-L-I. Mm -hmm. So what's the deal? Which one is actually Joseph's dad? And that kind of is loosely tied to the fact that it diverges after David. So yeah. that seems to be one of the major discrepancies. And one, I mean, two of the biggest, so two, of, two of the most promising attempts at solving this kind of are pretty similar in nature. And they, they were offered in the third and fourth centuries. So some of the church fathers thought Joseph was the product of a Levirate marriage. So if you look in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 18, where you get the story of Onan, the famous Christian. Christians love the story of Onan because it's exciting. <laughs> what? Um, what a way to describe the, what is the story of Onan? Tell, tell the audience. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Onan had to fill in for his brother who was not able to conceive with his wife. And so according to Levy Wright laws, if your brother couldn't fulfill the deed, then you would have to step in and give your brother an heir by doing the deed yourself. So Onan, Onan did went and did the deed, but spilled then the he seed dropped his, while then doing he said, the deed. I knew you were going <laughs> to He tried to do the deed and he ended up dropping the seed. That's he like dropped a, the seed. Yeah, there you go. Well, that'll be our, that'll preach t-shirts. That would be an amazing rap. 
Oh my gosh, that needs to Dude, be. <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, uh, we're this children. This is where my mind goes. We just lost. Anyway. Oh, we just lost our last <laughs> few viewers. So that's it. We just gained that's it. an entire. But we just gained a whole population. Yeah, 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 a whole new demographic <laughs> has opened up to us uh, of of uh, eighth grade boys. So okay, right. so Leverite marriage. So basically, Joseph. Uh, so would this be saying that Joseph's dad? Listed in one of the genealogies is not his actual dad; it's his adoptive dad, or something, or, or it would be the brother of his dad. Yeah. So, so Julius Africanus, a, a third, fourth century, third century uh, church father, said, "Yeah, the Levirate marriage." So there was lot, so they, basically Jacob and Heli would have been brothers, and only one of them was the biological father of um, Joseph. Augustine takes a slightly different view and says rather than it was a Levirate marriage. He thinks that Joseph was just straight up adopted. And so hmm. in one reading, we get a biological father. And then in the other, we get a legal father. And so there's some evidence that son of, uh, or being, being of someone doesn't necessarily mean a biological relation, but it could just mean of the legal household. And so it's a legal relationship. And so if Joseph was adopted, Augustine actually makes this nice little theological point that in the same way that Joseph had two fathers, he knew what it was like to have two fathers. And so Jesus had two fathers. And so there's a kind of like fittingness to the, the whole adoption of Jesus into the family of Joseph. Joseph himself was adopted into the family of, I forget which one he calls the biological Heli or Jacob, but it's a kind of like nice, elegant model. Well, there's also like with Matthew, he's taking some liberties in that he's trying to point to the fact that Jesus is part of the Davidic line. And I, I almost wonder, and this is like some people think that Heli is actually uh, Mary's father, right? That Luke 3 yeah. tracks Mary's line. And I guess with these things, we, can, we can't know for sure. But maybe a couple things to consider. One, like you said, this is a huge problem in the sense that it's almost so big of a problem that there, that it couldn't have been a mistake in a sense. Like Matthew and Luke probably had some interaction with each other, at least, or at least understood or aware of each other's sources. I mean, Luke says that his account is a compilation of oral and written accounts that he's compiled together. And the early church knew this, so they're not stupid. So there must have been some way to harmonize it. It's such a blatant, quote-unquote, mistake that it, it almost... Does that make sense? It, it's, it's so blatant that it must be... There must be some reason other than they were lying or they just didn't know the genealogy. And uh, so, but we can't really know a hundred percent, but it does seem to make sense that, you know, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is in the line of David in like a Royal lineage. Um, right. But Luke might be more about the biological lineage. So there's, he's not just the Royal sort of heir uh, officially like descending as a King but he's also biologically related to David. So that, that might be something there. I guess, you know, we could speculate on that. So an, another thing in favor of the Mary interpretation is, like you said, yeah, Matthew seems to be concerned with showing Jesus's royal lineage. Luke is very concerned with the historical, biological realities of the birth of Jesus. And if you, if you read the first two chapters of Luke, a lot of it is about Mary. So he talks about yeah. the visitation, Mary's relationship with Elizabeth, 
um, and all, all these sort of things. So Mary does figure very prominently. He's the one who records the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings. And so there's a lot of emphasis on Mary in the first two chapters. So it's not surprising that Luke would have uh, included some of those elements of her genealogy uh, in the story. And I've even heard some scholars say that if you look in Jeremiah, for example, it says that uh, no, no descendant of Jehoiakim who's one of the kings, would ever sit on the throne. And so by, by including Mary's lineage, uh, he sort of like avoids that challenge. So th- there's there's some interesting stuff that it might be that Luke's doing there, but it gets, it gets complicated a, pretty quick. There's a, uh, there's a couple things. In Matthew, there's, there's a skipping of generations after Joram. So it goes Joram to Uzziah. And Wyatt Graham, I mean, we'll put this in the show notes. He has a good article on this where Joram married... Uh, one of Ahab's daughters, Athaliah. And then Ahab's, basically his line was cut off. So they skip three generations to Uzziah, but that's because they were sort of illegitimate kings or they were people who were under a curse or something like that. But that, that's that's one of the problems that I guess the other genealogy avoids, but Matthew avoids it in a different way, I think. I mean, this is stuff that I'm just kind of thinking mm. out loud. But it, it just occurred to me too that Luke, I mean, Luke in the beginning, he says, I'm seeking to create this kind of historical record. He's, he's a historian. He's trying to put things together. He probably got a lot of the infancy narrative stuff from Mary, right? I mean, it, he probably got it from her. And so it would make sense why the genealogy would be something that he would get from her. And now I'm thinking people talk about how Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And the last book in the Jewish canon is Second Chronicles. And Chronicles is about the lineage of the kings. And basically how the exile, when when Israel was taken into exile in Babylon, that ended the king lineage, at least in an official capacity. There's no king in Israel when Jesus shows up. I mean, there's Agrippa, but he's a false king. And so Matthew, starting the New Testament, is going to pick up from that kingly lineage. And it's probably that Matthew used the Chronicles genealogy as the basis for his genealogy. But Luke probably uses Mary and her genealogy as a basis for his so they're probably even coming at it from different angles. I, this is off, you know. This is speculation on my part, but uh, I think maybe a larger question is thinking about how the Gospels have different purposes, and how Matthew is taking some liberties in order to underscore a more serious point about the kingship of Jesus. Um, you know, the the uh, there, there's. I think Daryl Bach talked about this where he talks about how um, there's a, I forget what's called, gematria or something like that. It's it's the use of Jewish- The numbers? Yeah, Jewish uh, letters also have numerical values and all that stuff. So there's stuff going on there with David being 14 and there's 14 generations and all this stuff mm. going on there that the readers would have understood. And, uh, but on, on another level, I think about how like, you know, I have a background in film editing. And you cut things out, not because you're lying, but because you're actually trying to tell a more clear story. Sometimes you right. even rearrange things, but it's actually for clarity. It's actually to enable telling the truth. So just because Matthew omits certain people in the lineage doesn't mean he's lying. It actually means he's trying to get at a, a deeper truth, right? So he can skip some generations, but there's a purpose. And just like when you edit together a, a video or something like that, you're cutting things out for a purpose. You're cutting things out to make a story more clear. You're cutting things out to pay, to bring the viewer to pay more attention to certain aspects of the story. 
So I think if people have a, a too wooden a view of the inspiration of Scripture, maybe it, it would feel like a problem. But really, I think Matthew is just being creative, not lying, but he's trying to use the genealogy in a way that that puts forth something a little deeper underneath the surface. Do you think that, so I've heard people make a big deal of the the inclusion of Rahab and the, the reference that David... Um, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And so like including kind of like scandalous elements like that in the genealogy is like, what, what should we make of that? What, what do you think Matthew was trying to do with that? Is that, is that kind of like trying to be honest reporting? And so, Hey, this lends credibility to my account because I'm willing to include embarrassing factors or what's, what's going on there. Well, it just seems like he's including some Gentiles in there. So, and that's mm, yeah. a lot of what Matthew and Jesus talks about, the inclusion of the Gentiles. And uh, it might just be showing that it is kind of interesting that God comes to us through a genealogy. I mean, that's a, t- a tip of the hat to the incarnation, that the true humanity of Christ. He's coming through real families with real problems, and it's not a pretty picture all the time, kind of like... Our families. Right. Um, but he does. I mean, he talks about David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So he basically outs David there you know, as an adulterer and includes that in the line. Um, you know, he speaks about, um, like you mentioned, Rahab, prostitute. Um, and he, you know, he talks about, I think Ruth is in there, right? Who's a Moabite. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And the Moabites and the Israelites had a lot of tension between them. So I think a, a lot of what, what is happening, I think, is that Matthew is trying to show how Christ sums up the trajectory of the Old Testament. You know, mm-hmm. you think about Rahab and Ruth and, you know, even Uzziah, the, you know, uh, David's deal with Bathsheba. These are all pivotal moments in redemptive history. And I think these, these are like plot points. It's not just sort of this robotic listing of names, but there's this story being unveiled through the lives of these families. And Jesus is the pinnacle of that, the fruition of that. Actually, Alistair Roberts, who I just always quote all the time anyways, he's got a great video. I'll probably, I'll post that in the show links too, where he talks extensively about that in Matthew 1. He sees all these parallels and all these kinds of things with the numerical value. But there's a lot more going on here. And I think sometimes these questions about like, you know, who was Joseph's dad, they're important, but we don't want to get stuck in them. We don't want to like get stuck in there and miss what else is going on. And I think it's a cumulative type of thing where you realize, oh, there's a lot of intention into this genealogy. Then you can be like, well, then this isn't just some blatant, ignorant thing that Matthew did to do a different genealogy than Luke. He's doing something very deep and substantial here, and he probably has a good reason for why it's different than Luke. And once you say that, then a lot of these ways of reconciling become more plausible. But if you immediately go, well, no, it's just got, there can't be anything more going on. It's just got to be this mistake. Then nothing's going to convince you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to, to people who ask the question, why is this relevant? Why is it worth looking at? genealogies and the historical details and what's the role of the Old Testament and why Israel. Matthew and Luke are giving us the answer here. So imagine as a thought experiment, imagine if God became incarnate now, just randomly, 
like like some family claims that they're like an angel visited them. There's a there's an incarnate, you know, God is God is incarnate in this in this child. And that that disjointed picture would make no sense. Right. And so Matthew and Luke's point here seems to be that there's a that Jesus is the culmination of a story that's already happening, that the incarnation makes sense. So scripture uses this language like in the fullness of time, reality was kind of like pregnant and just waiting to give birth to the incarnation. Like there's something important about the way Israel's history and Rome and all of this stuff was leading up to this this moment in time where God entered and became one of us. And it's not random, it's connected. And so the argument is, if Jesus were incarnate, sort of like, imagine just like, like in Germany in the 21st century, that wouldn't make any sense, right? So it only makes sense in this context. So the Jewish context to the incarnation is important that God had always selected a people. And from those people, there would be, those people would be the vehicle through which he would give his promised blessing to the world. And so from Adam to Abraham, to David, to you know the, the the priestly tradition after that and all the kings of Israel, there it's 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 a kind of like that story is being written for a purpose greater than than just Israel. That Israel is is a vehicle and a conduit for the rest of the nations. And you see the Gentiles inclusion, Matthew's genealogy, that God's plan from the beginning was always to bring in the Gentiles, but this idea that history is situated and there are important milestones. And the incarnation was a fulfilling of certain milestones like that. It's all happening in God's timing. And Matthew and Luke are trying to reiterate that point that it's not, it's not random. It's the culmination. Jesus' coming is a fulfillment and a fitting um, arrival point uh, at the end of these, these lineages. So it's not, it's, not, it's not random. It's not disconnected. It's not disjointed. Jesus is supposed to make sense of Israel in the Old Testament. And so that, that's by seeing him as a capstone and the tying of the knot and all these sorts of things. Well, that's why, like you were saying, I mean, it begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And with mm. those two names are two pivotal points in the Old Testament, in the story of God's people. David, the promise to David that you'll always have an heir on the throne. And the promise to Abraham that through your family, you'll bless the nations. And like you are saying, those two big narrative arcs are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the seed of David, the son of David, who by his resurrection eternally reigns on the throne. He is the true seed of Abraham, who through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But these are people. And I think about that when God works in history, he doesn't work above it or outside of it, but he works through it. He works through these families. And you think about that all the way back in Genesis, where you know, after the, the fall, God basically says to Eve, your, ser- your seed will destroy the serpent, right? That I'm not going to eliminate the family or procreation or any of these things that I gave in the original creation, but through those pathways, I'm going to bring about redemption. It's going to be through your marriage and your child and your lineage and, and a succession of families that I'm going to undo the curse of the fall. And there's an there's this humanity to it. There's, this is the gospel is about history. It's about, like you were saying, God acting in the fullness of time. And even thinking about Jesus's identity. I think N.T. Wright said this, where he said that uh, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus's last name. He wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. And that's just like a family name. It's a royal title. And again, if, if 
the Jewish Bible ends with Chronicles and it be, and the New Testament begins with Matthew. Chronicles ends with Cyrus, the king of Persia, saying, God, you have given me all the nations of the earth. Cyrus becomes this king. After the lineage of the Jewish kings is ended, Cyrus kind of fills in the gap. He's this Gentile ruler as a provisionary kind of king over the nations. And then Matthew is like, well, now God's going to raise up his Jewish king again, right? And he's going to take over the nations. So there's this kind of loose thread where the Old Testament ends canonically with no king of Israel, a Gentile king claiming authority over the nations. And Matthew begins with the king of Israel. And Matthew ends with a great commission of Jesus going out and he's going to disciple the nations and baptize them in his name through the church. So there's this kind of, I think Matthew's working on multiple levels with this. And, um, but the incarnation, I think, also is really important. You know, this is something that um, you, you can't pull apart Jesus and his Jewish lineage, the fact that he has royal lineage. Uh, you can't pull him out of the Old Testament context. If you remove all these things, you don't have Jesus anymore. And I think understanding what the apostles were thinking when they encountered Jesus, when they knew what it meant for him to be the Christ, all these things have to inform the way that we read these texts and understand them. I find it helpful to think about um, the history. And sometimes as a philosopher, I can tend to minimize the historical aspects or just kind of kind of brush the details aside. But it's important to get these moments of uh you know, it, it's important to think about Jesus in the context of Israel and the Old Testament. And it's it's tempting to take a kind of like mere Christianity approach and just when you read mere Christianity or when you think about the way we like talk about Christianity in the modern moment, it's Christianity is like a philosophical tool set that helps solve certain modern problems. And it does. But there's another way that we can think about Christianity that's very historically situated where Israel and the Old Testament are important. And I think we need both, right? And so it's moments like these. And I think it's it's very apt in the Advent season to remember the Old Testament and the historical context in Israel. And, and God did all that on purpose. And to take that seriously in our reflections on the Advent season, the birth of Christ, the coming of God into humanity is not just a random solving of a philosophical problem. It's the historical culmination of a people group and a history and thousands of years of expectancy that God would one day save the world through a people, by a people, and reverse a curse and place someone on the throne and very, very concrete historical realities are being solved and introduced in the incarnation. And it's just a, it's a, it's an important reminder in this season. I, I find it useful to, to emphasize that. It stops you from just saying, we love what Jesus stands for. Like, why do we even care about a genealogy? Yeah. Who cares who Jesus came from? He taught a lot of great things. We can learn a lot from him. And actually, Matthew and Luke are like, no, it matters a great deal where he came from. If you think about it too, John has a genealogy. <laughs> he has a genealogy of yeah. <laughs> the word became flesh, right? The ultimate yeah. origin of, of Christ. And, uh, that, I think, is really important, and it does. Christianity is about history. Jesus was a man. He was a historical figure, and he came into the world through this lineage. And uh, I think there's something offensive about that or, or something unsettling about that, too, where you can't just remove the husk of history and just get to the bare kernel of Jesus and what he represented. But Jesus is 
a historical figure. And God really did act in history in this man, right? God took on flesh. And I think that is something that you have to contend with. When you read the gospels, it's very earthy. It's about a family. It's about a real lineage. It's about real people. And uh, I think sometimes we can abstract it and just be, Jesus helps me get through life. Jesus is a nice thing to think about. It's a crutch. It's a answers philosophical questions. But ultimately, whether they answer them or not, he was a person. He he came. And that that has effects throughout all, all of history. And I think it's something to focus on on Christmas. And maybe something you people joke about the genealogy. You look at them and you're like, oh gosh, this is boring. This is nerdy. But it's like if you really think about what it's saying, it's a profound truth. It's a, a uniqueness. It's this is about the incarnation, God taking on flesh. And uh that's not something we can gloss over. That's at the heart of the gospel. You know? I think about this even in, uh, and here my my nerd colors will shine true and unashamed in all of the, the controversy surrounding the new Amazon Rings of Power, which I I did like, even though I have my criticisms. I went back and I reread The Silmarillion, <laughs> yeah. where Tolkien gives us the layout and the history and the genealogies. And at, reading through The Silmarillion feels like reading portions of Chronicles and Kings and the genealogies because it's just... One, Tolkien's brilliant, and he's he's actually got genealogies, fictional genealogies for all of these characters. Right. But it helps make sense of, like, you read certain passages of people losing their temper or having these, like, desires for power or wealth or family or relationships between people groups, and they make more sense when you go back and read the genealogies and the histories. And so that kind of, that idea where history can adjudicate, history can make sense of, history can introduce context that helps us understand why certain things are the way they are. And so I have a renewed appreciation for the genealogies post, uh, post Tolkien. The other thing is when I was looking through this, looking at the actual names and being like, yeah, what is the deal with Joram and Uzziah and Ahaz <laughs> and Hezekiah and all that stuff? I think great it's movie a, names. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great <laughs> exercise to go and actually look up those names and go into first and second Kings and go into first Chronicles, second Chronicles and look at these people. And I think a wealth of insight appears. These aren't just names. These are stories, right? These are actual events that give light in, into the person of Christ and, 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 and all this stuff. So I think that's a healthy exercise. If you want to go check it out, go look through that list and just underline them and see if you can find their referent and then go read their stories and go read what actually happened to them. And you'll, you'll find a lot comes out of that. Your your next preaching series is going to be Becoming Uzziah, Lessons for Transformation and Leadership. I know. Yeah, like exactly. We need a blog. Yeah, someone's got a blog about that. But anyway, <laughs> thank you guys for listening to this episode. Uh, we're going to put some resources if you're interested in digging deeper into this in the show notes. And, uh, you know, this is kind of uh, off the cuff a little bit. Most of our stuff is. But uh, hopefully this was helpful. And uh, we're going to keep talking a little bit more about some Advent topics. If you would like to hear something, if you would like us to talk about something, you could send us a message at That'll Preach Podcast on Instagram. You can let us know what you think and make sure you leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, let people know about it. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you guys next week. Bye.